is Ruin Willow, and you are listening to the Oh, Fuck Yeah with Ruin Willow podcast. I am so excited today. I am interviewing an amazing man who's had the most amazing career, and he recently wrote the book. I mean, this is so big. It's so thick. It is comprehensive. Sizzling Sex for Life by Michael Castleman the world's most popular sex writer. On my podcast, I talk about all things related to sexuality, sexual health, erotica, interviews with erotica authors and experts like Michael Castleman. (laughs) So excited to talk to Michael. I'm so excited. I'm sitting here waiting for him to join my Zoom call. I'm so excited. I mean, to be able to talk with someone who has this much knowledge about sex, who spent decades studying sex. I am so excited everyone is here today. I have the most amazing guest and he has the most amazing career. He has studied sex for decades. I mean, how amazing is that? I cannot wait to pick his brain to talk about his new book, Sizzling Sex for Life. Everything you need to know to maximize erotic pleasure at any age. Now that's a book to keep on your bookshelf and read and look up and just keep. So excited. So welcome, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rowan. I am excited to hear from you. Now, how many books have you written? You've written quite a few, haven't you? Uh, Yeah, I've written about 18 or so, but only three of them are about sexuality. Okay. focused exclusively. I've written about sexuality for 45 years, but I've focused exclusively on it for the last 16 years. And uh, and I've always enjoyed writing about it. And the great thing about writing about sex is that most people with sex problems, they get better. I mean, if they have information, most people about a third of people with sexual issues, all they need is some information and they get better. Nice. Um, And the uh, people who don't get better, there's a, you know, industry of sex therapists and sex counselors who can help them get better. And look over the long term of people who have had sex problems, either self-help or professional therapy helps about 90% of them. And the 10% who do not get helped generally have medical problems that preclude sexual pleasure. But the vast majority of people with sexual issues, from the simple to the complex, they get and get resolved. And so writing about sex is a sort of a feel-good thing because, you know, it's not like writing about climate change where, you know, it just seems like things are getting worse. Right. With sex, things get better. And highly satisfying to you as well, I would imagine, being someone that can help with those problems and see it resolve. Yeah. And my special niche is that I read, I read sex research and I translate it so that it gets out of the obscure, rarefied journals, academic journals, and gets Mm. out to the public. Uh, That's my role. I'm, I'm a sort of translator. I take academic research and which is, there's more of it than there's ever been. But nobody knows about it because it it's just locked up in these, you know, academic journals that nobody reads. Well, right. I read them and I pick out the good articles and I write about them. 
And I, I have a blog on psychologytoday.com that's quite popular. And that's my role now. That's really important because so many people aren't, they're not going to go looking for that information. I mean, it's not a common thing. Right. And it's not easy to find. I mean, if you put in search terms uh, in search engine in Google, you may find some academic research, but most people don't have the background in sexuality to judge whether what they're reading is good or not. Or right. uh, So I, that's been my niche. I, I was a medical writer for many years and read a tremendous amount of medical research. And that was how I got into writing about sex. Okay. And really, I feel like it, it meets a need. Oh, absolutely. It does. I feel like it definitely meets a need. Now, can you tell me what one is your one of your top favorite experiences of your career? My favorite experience as well. I would say that the experience that started me writing about sexuality is the one that keeps coming back. And this was way long ago in 1973 when uh, dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> um, I was writing for a community newspaper in Michigan and Valentine's Day was coming up and the editor of the paper wanted to boost circulation for Valentine's Day and get advertising. And so I was writing health articles at the time. And he came to me and said, Michael, I need you to write a cover story called How to Make Love. Ah. And I flat out refused. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Are you kidding? I'm 23 <laughs> years old. What do I know? Right. And he said, well, you live with your girlfriend, don't you? And I said, yeah, I live with my girlfriend, but it doesn't mean I'm an expert in sex. <laughs> so I refused and I went home. And my home was about a 10-minute walk from the newspaper office. And when I got home, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, was there waiting for me and said, what do you mean you won't write this article about sex? Mike, you might learn something. Oh. And what had happened was the editor, who knew both of us socially, called her and said, you got to help me out. You got to get Michael <laughs> to write this article. So my wife, my girlfriend at the time, Anne, leaned on me. And, and I said, Oh, all right, I'll do it. And, <laughs> uh, and not, this was in 1973. And this was right as Masters and Johnson, the, the first scientific sex researchers in the United States, their books had just come out in paperback. And so I read them. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And I started writing about sex. And I've been writing about it ever since since 1973. That's an amazing story. And that she was supportive right off the bat for you to do that. I think that's really cool. Yeah. And we're still together and uh, still having sex. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> and I love your book too, how it talks about at any age. I love how you address that because so many people, I think they think, you know, senior people don't have sex, but then I always think, look at them and say, do you want to have stop having sex? I don't think they do, but it's funny how we have that viewpoint that older people aren't supposed to have sex. I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> well, you know, it was always the view that there's sort of an expiration date on sex, that after you're 60 or 70 or 75 or whatever, right. that sex would just stop. And what stops is intercourse, because men develop erection issues, and women develop vaginal dryness and atrophy, sure. and it just becomes increasingly uncomfortable and impossible to have intercourse. But older couples 
what they do is they jettison intercourse and they get into what sex therapists call outer course, mm. which is everything but. So it's kissing, hugging, rolling around, mutual massage, oral sex, toys, maybe some anal, maybe some kink. There, there are vast vistas of sexual pleasure that are open to the oldest old people. And right. in surveys of elderly people, the vast majority who are coupled continue to have some sex. And the vast majority of people in general in late life want to have sex and, and have it with themselves, of course. Sure. So if they have partners, they want to have partner sex and they want to continue to be sexual because it's one of life's greatest pleasures and it's good for stress relief. It's good for your ability to sleep. It's just good for health and well-being in general. Absolutely. And I always feel like we're alive. This is the time that we should be having sex. It only right. makes sense. <laughs> right. And, and the, uh, you know, before Viagra, Viagra was released in 1998. So that's 20-odd years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, there was almost no sex research on older people because mm -hmm. researchers were like everybody else. And they believed that old people stopped having sex. Hmm. Well, when Viagra was introduced, that caused a revolution in sex research. And people went, wow, you know, like old people do have sex. Let's right. study. <laughs> and so since 1998, in the, in the 21st century, basically, an, an enormous amount of research has been published about elder sex. And it all pretty much confirms the fact that old people want to make love, they do make love, and they make the adjustments that they have to make because of age-related sexual changes. But wow. they can still have pleasure. And, you know, and, and I'm one of them. I'm, I'm 72. I still have sex, and I intend to do it for the rest of my life. I think that's wonderful. And I love that the climate is changing or people are starting to see that it's not as much, I think, like you said, you know, I think it used to be more viewed that way in the past and it's changing. So that's, that's wonderful. I think that's great. I mean, that's what I want. I don't want to stop having sex. I mean, why would I? It's enjoyable. Why would I want to stop? <laughs> well, I have a question from Reggie Six Sheets. He is a podcaster on, he's called Reggie Six Sheets on Twitter. And he has podcasts that talks about kink and fetish and sexuality. And he had a question for you. Okay. What is your take on the wide availability of porn online and how that shapes modern sex lives? We'll be back after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure the man in your life grooms his carpets and his drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Have him clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch his confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and have him join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code RUIN. You have to use my new code RUIN, R-U-A-N, for the 20% off and free shipping. Have you ever been doing some oral pleasure and got some hairs in your mouth or your teeth? Well, <laughs> Manscaped can help with that. Try being clean shaven 
for spring cleaning. After he uses Manscaped, you can say, hmm, let's get some busy with some spring fever in the bedroom. Try out Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It is an amazing trimmer that features two interchangeable heads, one for taking a little off the top and the new foil blade to go smooth. If you want to go smooth for spring cleaning, make sure you try out Manscaped products. Bring on those smooth skin sexy slaps in the bedroom. And how do you do that? Use Manscaped products to shave clean down in your pubic area. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code RUIN. You have to use my new code RUIN, R-U-A-N, all caps at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with code RUIN at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in his pants, right? In your pants if you're a man. <laughs> spring clean your groin area. Try smooth. Try it with Manscaped. Well, uh, that's a huge issue. And I would just like to say that in my book, Sizzling Sex for Life, there are seven chapters devoted to issues around porn. And my own view is that, well, let me just say that there are certain people in the world who view pornography as some kind of catastrophe, that it's horrible, it should be banned, it destroys lives, it destroys marriages. The fact is, if you look at the research, none of that is true. Zero, nada, nothing. If there are people who claim, for example, that pornography has spurred a huge increase in the divorce rate, that's not true. The divorce rate has been declining for the last 30 years. And those are the 30 years that porn has been on the internet. Right. There's, there are all kinds of people who say that porn causes erection impairment in men. That is absolutely not true. The best research shows that that's not true. The, there are people who will tell you that, that, that all actresses, all the women who act in porn are victims of child sexual abuse who have been, right. been kidnapped and bamboozled into working for evil pornographers because they're so destroyed by their sexual history. The fact is, the best research shows that women who work in porn are no more likely to have been victims of child sex abuse than women in the general population. And the main difference between women who work in porn and women who do not work in porn is that the women who work in porn enjoy sex more and feel fine about doing it on camera. That's that's it. So, my attitude is that. People worry about pornography. Pornography itself is basically benign. You know, people, you know, the anti-porn people say that men get lost in a, you know, whirling vortex of porn and they just, you know, sit in their rooms and watch it for days on end. Yeah, become addicted, right? Yeah, absolutely not true. The one of the largest porn sites in the world is Pornhub. Yeah. And they, the great thing about Pornhub is they publish annual statistics about their site visitors. Mm. And one of them is how long people stay on the site. And the fact is that more than half of, of visitors to Pornhub stay on the site for less than five minutes. And uh-huh. about 
stay less than 10 minutes. So basically porn for most men, porn is like a coffee break. It's a little time out from the daily hassles. And the other thing about porn is that what people don't talk about when they talk about pornography is self-sex, solo sex, masturbation. Right. Uh, porn and masturbation go together like the double helix of DNA. Right. And people who are uncomfortable about masturbation are almost always uncomfortable about porn because the True. two are so closely linked. The fact mm -hmm. is masturbation is fine. Masturbation is good for you. Masturbation is how we learn about our own sexuality and what we like. Masturbation is for men. It's one of the main ways that men relieve stress. Yeah. Women often take hot baths and talk to friends. And, you know, there are some men who do that too, but usually men click onto porn and stroke for five minutes, come, and then they feel relaxed and they can go on with their lives. Exactly. Uh, so I feel like uh, porn is, is incredibly maligned by a largely sex negative culture, people who are very uncomfortable about sex and particularly uncomfortable about masturbation, but that porn is okay. And there's no such thing as porn addiction. The whole addiction model is ridiculous and is, a, is just an intellectual fraud and I, that's why I wrote seven chapters in Sizzling Sex about pornography to set people straight. Now, the one mistake that people make with porn is that they don't understand, a lot of men do not understand that porn is a fantasy. Porn is like a cartoon. Yes. Porn is like the chase scenes in action movies. They're exciting and they're fun to watch, but it's not the way to drive. Right. And pornography is fantasy material. It is not a documentary. And a lot of men, unfortunately, because they, because we don't have very good sex education in this country or exactly anywhere in the world. A lot of men make the big mistake of viewing porn as some kind of how-to documentary. Right. And then of course they can't measure up and they feel horrible. And of course the women really feel worse because porn is a male sex fantasy. And right. Um, that doesn't really relate to women's sexual needs. And so I have a chapter in my book called The Real Problem with Porn. It misrepresents lovemaking. And so, for example, in, in, in porn, the guy drops his trousers and out pops a fully formed erection. This, this happens in the vast majority of porn. The guy oh, yeah. hard immediately, instant erection. Yep. Well, I mean, if you're 17 years old, that happens. <laughs> right. If you're 21 years old, that happens. If you're 30 years old, that can still happen. But after about 30, that doesn't happen anymore. Right. And it takes it takes time and it takes fondling and it takes kissing and hugging and massage and genital play for men to raise erections. So that's just one of the, I think there are 26 ways that I list in that chapter about how porn misrepresents sex. And that doesn't make it evil anymore. Right. It's, not evil. it's not evil when the road runner hits Wiley Coyote over the head <laughs> right. with a hammer. It's a it's good not, analogy. It's not evil. It's a cartoon. Right. And, and everyone laughs and they know it's a cartoon and no one takes it seriously. Right. Well, porn is the same, except that people don't know 
that it's fantasy and they make a big mistake. Men make a big mistake trying to imitate it. And women, unfortunately, have to deal with men who think that porn is a documentary. And um, so my book has a tremendous amount about the clitoris and how men really need to focus on women's pleasure. And men want women to have pleasure. There's a myth among some feminists that men just don't care about women's pleasure and sex is something they take from women and, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, and goodbye. Right. Uh, That absolutely misrepresents how the vast majority of men feel. Many men, most men, in fact, the best research shows that the large majority of men judge their own sexual prowess by whether the women have pleasure, whether the women have orgasms. Now, if men make love the way they do in porn, the women are not going to have orgasms. Exactly. women, Very few women have orgasms from intercourse alone because intercourse does not provide enough stimulation for the clitoris, which is not inside the vagina. It's outside of it, an inch above it, beneath the top junction of the vaginal lips. And so my book is really a plea to men to get a clue about (laughs) what makes women tick, what gives women pleasure. And And I have to say, I've gotten a lot of thank you notes from men and women saying, hey, you know, I couldn't get through to him, but you did. And thank you very much. Nice. Yeah, I think for me as a woman, the biggest problem with porn is that it doesn't pay attention to the orgasm gap. Right, right. And that's that's exactly right. Porn does not. The women in porn never have orgasms. That's the only realistic element of porn. Right. If you make love like they do in porn, the women don't come. Yeah, um, And I sympathize with women who feel frustrated by porn for this reason. But, you know, you can rail about it or you can view it as a teachable moment. And right. I prefer to see it as a teachable moment to say to guys, look, you know, it's a cartoon. It's a fantasy. Here's how to do it right. And if you do, if you slow down, if you place less emphasis on genital sex and more g- emphasis on kissing and cuddling and hugging and whole body massage, you're going to function better sexually. She's going to come and you're both going to feel a lot better about sex. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally could not agree more. That's just, I think it's great that people are responding to your book in that way and that it's actually helping people because I think that's a big misconception from people that they they just don't get it. They don't get how women work. They don't understand the clitoris. It's, you know, it's just so easy for men to come. And it was very easy for them as a child or, you know, a teenager. It just was sort of just easy. And it's not like that for women. Take some time to learn our bodies and figure out what works for us. It's not just this boom, boom, done. You know, right. it's the main teacher. The main teacher of orgasm is solo sex, self-sex. That's how women learn how to come. That's how men learn how to come. Except the thing with men is that men, young men come spontaneously. I mean, wet dreams, they have orgasms in their sleep. And the main problem for young men is they come too fast. Uh, Coming is something that's like the easiest thing in the world. And they wish it happening a little slower. Um, Part of that 
the irony of it is that the number one sex problem for men is premature ejaculation coming before they want to. Right. And the cure for it is to make love the opposite of porn. So instead of all genital sex, which is what you see, porn is 95% genital and only 5% sensual. Right. You flip that and you have your sex be about 60, 70% sensual and 20, 30% genital. And then women come and men don't come until they want to. Right. So Makes perfect win-win. sense. It's a win-win. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. You know, you always hear men, oh, women need all this foreplay. And you hear people have a negative opinion of it. And I'm like, really? There's so much fun that you can do if you do more foreplay. I mean, there's just so right. many things you can do. And I mean, you can, and the whole idea of foreplay assumes that it's something that happens before intercourse. Well, True. a whole lot of people don't even have intercourse and they have great sex. True, I mean, older, good point. People, older people, there's no such thing as foreplay because there's no intercourse. It's all just yeah. The other thing I really need to say about porn is that I'm sure you've phrases, porn addiction, sex addiction. Right. And there's a whole cottage industry that demonizes porn and says that people who watch it are addicts. And there's all this, you know, addiction metaphor going on. The real problem when, when you look at men and, and people who are sex addicts, like almost hundred percent of them are men. And when you look at really what's going on, these are men who don't have any more sex than men who don't think they're sex addicts. The real difference between men who think they're porn or sex addicts and men who know they're not is that men who are, who are fall into the addiction trap are almost over, are overwhelmingly raised in sex negative families and religions that demonize mm-hmm. masturbation. Right. As I said earlier, porn and masturbation go hand in glove. And so when men think there's some they're sex addicts because they watch porn, actually what they're really upset about is the fact that they masturbate and it causes right. tremendous stress. And what do men do to relieve their stress? Well, they masturbate more. And so yes. feel caught in this vicious cycle. They 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 think something's wrong with them because they masturbate. They get very stressed out. They masturbate more and on and on and on. If you look at treatment protocols for men with so-called porn addiction, the best treatment sits them down and says, look, without any disrespect to your religious background, we just want to tell you that there is no scientific evidence that masturbation is bad. In fact, it's good. It's a good thing. It helps you sleep better. It helps you learn about your body. It helps you control your ejaculation. It's stress relieving. Masturbation is good for you. Now you don't want to do it in public. You don't want to do it. You know, it's, it's like going to the bathroom. It's something that you do in private, right? But masturbation is good for you. Please don't feel stressed because you, you stroke. And when men go through these programs, even if they were raised in sex negative families and fundamentalist religion, they calm down. They realize that this is that their religion had it unscientifically. And 
when they're and they're not as stressed out. And when they're not as stressed out, guess what they do less of? Masturbate to porn because they don't feel like they have to. Right. Yeah, it's just very guilt-inducing and building up of shame over something that is a natural act. Right. Right. It's it's so sad. So that that's why I devote so much of my book to uh, pornography. My book is for everyone, but it specifically focuses on men. I mean, I'm a man right. and I write for men. I try to write with a tremendous amount of respect for women and sensitivity to women and citing thousands of studies of female sexuality. My book is entirely evidence-based from the sex and medical literature. I cite 2,500 wow. studies which is the largest number of studies cited in any sex book that has ever been written. But, you know, I'm a journalist by trade. I'm not an academic. I'm not a researcher. And so I try to write in a very accessible style that sure. summarizes research for people, but doesn't get bogged down in the minutia of uh, academic sex research. Right. So... So what do you have to say about people who like to masturbate daily? I mean, I know some people that you were talking about sex negative people will kind of shame people that do that. It's fine. It's fine. The, um, you know, in sex education circles, the message has always been, it's fine to masturbate. And, but I have a Q and a site on the internet called greatsexguidance.com where I answer sex questions for free. And I've gotten uh, well, I've answered about 15,000 questions. Wow. And hundreds of them go something like this. Hi, Mike. I'm a man. I know that it's okay to masturbate, but oh my God, I'm doing it once a day. I'm doing it twice a day. I mean, there must be something wrong with that. Isn't there? What should I do? Right. And I say to them, there's nothing wrong with it. If you want to masturbate daily, go right ahead you know, people, it's like a coffee break. People drink coffee every day. And there are, you know, problems if you drink too much coffee. <laughs> but, you know, basically having coffee once a day, twice a day, it's fine. The same with masturbation. The issue for men is not whether or not they masturbate. Every man does. I don't think there's a man on earth who hasn't. And I, and, um, right. And I think if the Pope were honest, he would say he did too. <laughs> I'm sure, yes. The issue for men is the frequency. Th thinking, yeah, men thinking right. oh my God, I do it once a day. I, I do it twice a day. There must be something wrong with me. I must be no. a freak, right? They think yeah. they're a freak. No, no, there's, there's nothing wrong with you. An enormous number of men masturbate daily and throughout life. I mean, I know... I know guys who are 80 years old yep. who have masturbated daily for 65 years. That's fantastic. I think that's great. They're enjoying. Yeah. And the other thing about my book, Sizzling Sex, you know, how to enjoy erotic pleasure at any age. Mm -hmm. Well, I've gotten a lot of pushback about, well, gee, I mean, kids, they're, they're not sexual. They're, they're too young for sex. Oh, How can I they know. at Gosh. any age? And the fact is people are sexual from day one. People yep. touch themselves. People touch their own skin. People touch their own genitals. And when babies find their own genitals, guess what? 
Mm-hmm. They like it and they keep doing it. And that's how people start masturbating. I am not saying that six-year-olds should be having sexual intercourse with other six-year-olds. What I am saying is that six-year-olds and people of any age and every age have sexual issues in their lives because they are sexual beings. And my book tries to make that as normalized and fun and non-traumatic as possible. And so there's a lot of advice. I have chapters in my book about giving parents advice about how to talk to their kids about sex and what to say when they find their kids masturbating and things like that so that people can enjoy sex at any age, even if they're not having sex with other people. Every child plays with their own genitals. And you know what? That's a good thing. It is. And you know, this is just really hitting home for me because I'll tell you a personal story. When I was in elementary school, I was so excited one day. I came running to my mom. I was so excited. I said, mom, you won't believe this. It feels really good for me when I touch between my legs. And I was ecstatic, right? She looks at me and says, you shouldn't be doing that. That crushed me so much. Yeah. And it changed what I did. You know what I became? I became a grinder because then I wasn't touching myself. And I, I just, that kind of breaks my heart that, that, that happens to other people, what happened to me, but it shaped my, that one sentence shaped my opinion about masturbating, about how to do it. And it affected me for a, probably a good couple of decades before I finally said, this is stupid. This is a normal thing. There's no shame involved. And so I kind of identified what you said earlier too with the men. And I just, I hate our country having this kind of a sex negative impact on young people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Your story has been repeated 50 million times. Oh, I imagine. So many, so many women have, have your story and men too. Uh, where masturbation is demonized as something that's foul and evil. And uh, it's just not true. It's so tragic and it's sad. And, and, and it's what keeps me, you know, it's what I jump out of bed in the morning thinking, well, hopefully I can reach someone with decent sex information today. Yeah, exactly. It's a great goal. I mean, and then I had it on the other end. I had my dad who didn't want my sister and I to use tampons because it meant something went in our vagina. Right. I mean, seriously, we didn't learn about tampons until we were in our in our teens and a friend told us what they were. We didn't even know what they were. We never even were like, what's that? I mean, that's ridiculous. You're so right. Yes, it's it's. uh... It is sad. I mean, my advice to parents about kids masturbating is what you say is, I'm glad you found this way to have pleasure, uh, but it's like going to the bathroom. It's something you do in private, yeah, and not in public in front of other people. And uh, when I, when I told that I have two kids and when they were growing up, they of course masturbated as children do. And I told them that said it's something to do in private. And you know what happened after that? Their bedroom doors were closed a lot more. <laughs> right. <laughs> I bet. Uh, and 
and they masturbated like crazy, like all kids do if they have permission. And, you know, my kids are functional adults out in the world and it's fine. It's fine. Self-touch is fine at any age. And uh, I think it should be encouraged. Yes. Uh, But of course, Jocelyn Elders got fired as the Surgeon General of the United States in the early 1990s for suggesting that masturbation was okay. I mean, the uh, conservative forces in government went absolutely nuts and she was forced to resign simply saying that it's okay to masturbate. That's disturbing. I've never heard that. That's very disturbing. No wonder we're all messed up about thinking people shouldn't masturbate. I just, I hope the climate changes more and I feel like maybe it is a little bit, but probably not enough. Well, it is. I mean, if you look at vibrator sales, for example, true, true. Uh, more than half of American women own at least one vibrator. Oh yeah. And so and the vast majority of women do not use vibrators in partner sex. I mean, it's one, I encourage that too. I, I think oh, yeah. vibrator play can definitely enhance partner lovemaking, but yes. the vast majority of women use vibrators by themselves with the door closed. And, you know, there's a myth out there that only men masturbate, women don't. That's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, yes, it is. Women masturbate as, almost as much as men. I agree. So I have well, to ask you. Women are less likely to use it for uh, stress relief. That that's the that is ah. the, the main difference between men and women with regard to masturbation. That men really use it for stress relief, and it's not surprising because men have high levels of testosterone, mm-hmm. and testosterone is the hormone of irritability. It it governs. Ah. You know, it it's it makes people irritable. It, it makes people aggressive, violent, go to war. All that's you know, play football. Sure. All that's testosterone. Yeah, and and it's and it gets men stressed. Right. And then what do men do to de-stress? Well, they take matters into their own hands. <laughs> exactly. So I have to ask you: Do you have a favorite sex toy that you recommend for people if they ever ask you, "Hey, well, which one do you recommend?" Well, my own personal favorite is my wife's breasts. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but um, vibrators are are overwhelmingly the most popular sex toy in the world. I, I mean, vibrators so, yeah. sell more units than all other sex toys combined. Mm-hmm. And when you say sex toy, you're really talking vibrator. Now, right. I'm... I've written a great deal about sex toys. I used to be a consultant for a sex toy company. Okay. Uh, and answered questions and, you know, developed products with them. And so, you know, the sex, there's a, there are dozens of different types of sex toy. And my attitude is couples who are interested in enhancing their erotic experiences can go to a website that sells sex toys. For example, Adam and Eve is mm-hmm. the biggest one. And just sample it. Take a look. See, see what appeals to you. Right. Uh, I think one of the great sex toys is the blindfold. Oh, yes. Now, blindfolds, the great thing about blindfolds is you can leave them on your nightstand. Yeah. <laughs> but he sees it. You could say, oh, I use it to sleep. Yeah, it's just it's just a scarf or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's easier to leave a blindfold on your nightstand <laughs> than it is to leave a Hitachi magic wand. 
True. <laughs> and blindfolds travel easily. You know, they take uh-huh. up. Space. You don't and need to charge the, them. <laughs> the thing about blindfolds is that they really can enhance erotic experience because when you deny people one sense, sight, yes, uh, they it's easier to focus on other senses like touch. Absolutely. And you know, a tremendous amount of lovemaking involves for, you know, domination and submission. And and I say this in the kindest, most loving way possible. A lot of people want to, you know, there's so many popular song lyrics that say, I would do anything for him. Right. So that's a way of expressing the fact that women are often enjoy being a little submissive sexually. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of men enjoy being a little dominant sexually. That doesn't mean that we're all 50 shades of gray, that we're whipping each other and, you know. Right. And there's nothing wrong with heavy BDSM if you're into it and you have a contract and you have an agreement and you have safe words. Right. Uh, But a whole lot of lovemaking involves some uh, domination and submission. As Mm -hmm. benign as the guy saying, take off your top. Uh, right. And she does. I mean, it's, there's tremendous charge in, in doing what someone else wants. It's very erotic and blindfolds are, are one of the most accessible and benign and easiest ways to get into some of that. And so I encourage people to try blindfold play, you know, until 50 shades of gray came out, Fifty Shades of Grey came out in right at the turn of the millennium. Mm-hmm. Short, oh no, two thousand eleven. So it's been like about oh, okay. about ten, twelve years. Mm-hmm. And when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, BDSM was considered this you know fringe, weird thing by most. Right. People. And then Fifty Shades of Grey sold 150 million copies <laughs> in five years, becoming right? best-selling novel in the history of the world. Interesting, And isn't all it? of a sudden, people woke up to the fact, whoa, there's a whole lot of women. And Fifty Shades of Grey is, a roman- is romance fiction that is pitched at women. Right. And people are going, oh, my God, there's a whole lot of women into BDSM. And Fifty Shades of Grey has sparked a tremendous upsurge in research about BDSM. Right. And what people have found, what all the researchers find is that a whole lot of people enjoy some form of BDSM play. It's like I said, it's not that they're, you know, chaining each other up. They're handcuffing each other to the front gate, (laughs) But, um, but elements of BDSM play obedience and blindfolds and some restraint and that kind of stuff is wildly popular. It's quite popular. In fact, there are good res- there's good research to show that about two thirds of people have sexual fantasies that involve some element of domination, submission, restraint, BDSM in general. It's pretty high. And yep. On the order of a third of people incorporate some elements of BDSM into their lovemaking. And sex toys are a big part of that. Blindfolds, restraints. They're, you know, if you want to explore BDSM, 
you can go to the chapter in my book called A Loving Introduction to BDSM that talks about how it's not about violence or abuse. BDSM is about trust. Yes. About trust. When, when you trust that someone is going gonna, is gonna to listen to you and, and do what you want, it has a powerful erotic charge. Yes. As long as you have safe words that can stop the action at any point, it works. And the irony of BDSM is that the submissive is the person who is actually in control. Exactly. And so many people have that backwards. I know. Right. People think, oh, it's these dominant men who want to uh, torture women. Right. Like, uh, and, and there is some precedent for that in the writings of the Marquis de Sade, who kind of invented BDSM, or at least mm. popularized it. And he, he was abusive. And people who are into BDSM absolutely repudiate him. Right. BDSM is about trust. It's about people agreeing, I am going to tell you how to undress and what I want you to do, and I want you to do it. And the other person says, fine, I'm happy to play that way. Let's. Right. And so, and that carries a powerful erotic charge that cannot be duplicated in any other way. So it's something to explore. And I try to, I write a, a, an introduction to it for people who are interested or confused about it. I suggest uh, you uh, dip into my chapter in uh, Sizzling Sex for Life. Yeah. As you're saying, communication is most important and they know what each other wants. It's not someone bullying someone into doing something. It's already been talked about before right. they begin. Right. In fact, in, in Fifty Shades of Grey, Christian Grey and presents Anastasia Steele with a proposed contract of what he would like to do, right. how he would like to play. And they go over it point by point. And she says, okay, I'll do this. And she lists the things she's happy to do. And then she says, well, this thing, I don't know, maybe. And then a couple of things she says, no, sorry, I'm just not into that. And he totally respects her and says, okay, that's, that will be the shape of our play. Right. And, and I think I like what you said, too, because some people still believe it's uncommon for people to be turned on by this or to actually even partake in it or experiment in it. They think it's those freaks over there that do that. They think it's still not common. Right. There are, you know, the thing is, if you, if people who think that BDSM is fringe, here's what I'd like you to do go to a search engine and put in BDSM and any locale, you will right. get hundreds of listings. I mean, there's BDSM, yep. there's BDSM clubs in every major metropolitan area of the United States. And most BDSM does not take place in clubs, but in private homes right. and groups. BDSM is everywhere. It is yes. everywhere. And tremendous amount of lovemaking. Even people who are not into BDSM, people who consider themselves sexually vanilla, they still make requests and they still incorporate elements of it into their play. Right. I think that's also true about swinging. Like so many people think that that's the fringe, like that just doesn't happen. Right. Yes. Uh, consensual non-monogamy is another area of sexuality that the more we research it, the more we find that people are 
into it. Now that's not everybody. Right. And it's not all the time. And, but it's consensual non-monogamy is a lot more common than most people think. And it's generally, you know, it, when it's mutual, it, it is often very relationship enhancing. Yes. And there are some, there's some, there's some couples who try it. And one of them says, well, I'm really not into it. Sure. Okay. So you're not into it. That's fine. You don't have to be into it, but right. a whole lot of people are, and there are swing clubs in every major metropolitan area of the United States. I mean, I live in San Francisco and there are two in San Francisco, right? which is a small city. And I've been, there are swing clubs in, in remote rural locales. I mean, it's not just happening in, you know, New York and Las Vegas and cities that are, have reputations for being sexually permissive. There right. are swing clubs all over rural America. We're talking, you know, Iowa, Mississippi, West Virginia, everywhere. And it doesn't mean, some people think, oh, it just means they just don't want to have sex with their partner. That's not true. Right. Yes. Uh, swinging is about, generally, is about enhancing primary relationships with a little bit of very well-controlled novelty. Right. And novelty, anything different triggers the release of dopamine in the brain, which is the dopamine is the neurotransmitter of pleasure. And so anything new enhances pleasure. You know, a lot of people notice that sex feels better in hotels than it does at home. Yes. Why? Because hotels are new and different. You're someplace right. new. You're someplace different. You're not looking at a load of dirty laundry. <laughs> right. And so novelty is sexually exciting. And so novel people are too. So mm -hmm. playing with somebody different can be very sexually exciting. And particularly when you go back to your main honey, you take that experience with you right. and the sex can be extremely hot after people have been playing at swing clubs and sex clubs and which are not for everybody. I'm, I'm not advocating that everybody right. you know, go to swing and sex clubs, but a whole lot of people do, and there's nothing wrong with it. Exactly. And it's consensual. It doesn't mean that they're going to end up in a divorce. If it's not consensual, then possibly. But yeah, if it's consensual and they both want to do it, it's basically harmless. Yes. Well, it's not just, it's either harmless or it's relationship enhancing. Um, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is that once again, there's a myth out there that consensual non-monogamy is something that men bludgeon women into participating in because the men right. want to get laid more and right. the women are kind of along for the ride and aren't really into it, but they say, okay, because they want to keep the guy, you know, that kind of thing. Right. That is absolutely not true. When you look at swing communities and swing relationships, the women are often the ones who are the prime movers and the ones who are in charge. And many swing clubs in America are run by women. And the, the idea that, that not consensual non-monogamy is some kind of uh, anti-female male abusive activity is just ridiculous. Right. It is ridiculous. True. It's that sex negative thing out there. People think it's 
I don't know. I don't know where people get these ideas from. But <laughs> uh, well, is, they, you know, where did your parents get their it's ideas? Puritan, right? The, it's just we we have inherited a massively sex negative culture. Yep. The Judeo Christian religious tradition is fairly sex negative. Yeah. Uh, particularly about masturbation. I mean, the you know God in in Genesis. The first commandment that God says to people is be fruitful and multiply. Right. And, and yeah, you know, people should reproduce, but Judeo-Christian religions took that mm. and humanized right. masturbation as a result because it right. is not being fruitful and multiplying. That's not multiplying. Right. Right. So we have the 3000 years of sex negativity at the root of our culture that we need to understand and overcome if we're going to be happy and erotically fulfilled. Right. And the silly thing is for people who believe in God, God gave us those sex organs to enjoy and use. Right. Right. And, and there's a right now in, in evangelical Christian circles, there are many, many ministers and organizations that are challenging sex negativity mm. and saying exactly what you just said, that sex mm. is a gift from God yes. and we shouldn't deny it. We should enjoy it and we should make sure it's not abusive, but we should enjoy it. Mm. And, and one, one thing I love about these evangelical sex positive organizations is that they quote scripture constantly about, nice. you know, about, how it's fine to have pleasure and it's fine to make love. And so I have, I have hope that, that some of the sex negativity that is embedded in so much of our religious activities in the United States may change and may evolve. And I really hope it does. Oh, I do too. And it's encouraging to hear that because I haven't really heard that there's a swing towards more sex positivity within that grouping of people. Uh, well, it's a, it's a minority point of view at the moment, but it mm, is growing. Okay. And there's a woman named Reverend Beverly Dale who runs a, an interfaith evangelical organization that, is, that teaches sex positivity in Christian schools. Oh, nice. Very nice. That's good. That is very encouraging. Yeah. And uh, there's even a Christian swing club in, in Phoenix called the Liberated Christians. You know what? I recently bumped into that. Maybe do you have it in your book? Maybe I somewhere I had I read yeah. that. Yes. <laughs> I mentioned it in my book, and you can go to their website, the Liberated Christians, and it's it's become a tourist attraction. People go to Phoenix now to to go to their club. Wow, that's very intriguing. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about fantasies. So some people like to have same-sex fantasies, but they consider themselves heterosexual. What's your take on that? Is that the, the kind of novel thing you were talking about? That's something different? Because some people think, oh, if I fantasize about, if I'm a man and I fantasize about having sex with another man, am, am I gay? Yes, that glad we're talking about that because fantasy, you know, there are two elements of lovemaking, friction and fantasy. Mm, yes. Friction is the touching 
And fantasy is what people should do when they're making love is let their minds go and think about anything they want. Sure. And sexual preference is not either or. You're not either heterosexual or homosexual. Sexual preference is a long, vast continuum. And there are people who are 100% straight, and there are people who are 100% gay. And most people are somewhere in between that. They are, they tend in one direction, but they might fantasize about something else. Right. And as I was saying previously about dopamine, about new experiences being heightening erotic pleasure. Well, it's not just new experiences that do this. It's new sexual thoughts as well. Sure. Also release dopamine and increase pleasure. And I encourage people to fantasize during lovemaking as much as they want. You don't have to just fantasize about your partner. Right. In fact, the most common fantasy, the most common fantasy, and many, many studies have demonstrated this, the most common fantasy is doing it with someone else. Right. I was going to bring that up because I read that and you're, I wanted to say that. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> it's the most common fantasy and fantasies of BDSM are very common. Fantasies of group sex are common. Right. Um, basically, anything you can imagine is a fairly common sex fantasy. Uh, it's, it's terrible, in my view, that sexual fantasy is discouraged and, and right. uh, demonized. It likes like masturbation. It's like something bad. No, no, no. It's sexual fantasy is what produces good sex. If you want to have good yes. sex, I encourage people to fantasize. And, you know, lovemaking is like meditation. In meditation, you take a little time out from your daily life and you sit quietly and you breathe deeply and you let your mind wander. Wherever your mind is wandering is fine. You just focus on your breath. And when you want to change where your mind is going, you just gently push that thought away and welcome the next new thought as you continue to sit quietly and deep and breathe deeply. Well, lovemaking, you're not sitting quietly. You're with yourself or somebody else and you're doing things. But in general, lovemaking has a lot of similarities of meditation. It's a time out from your regular life. Deep breathing is also part of it. And just let your mind wander. Let your fantasies just cascade over you. Enjoy your fantasies. Notice them. Don't judge them. They don't, they're no reflection on you whatsoever. Just like dreams are no reflection on you. They are, they're just there. And they're fine, whatever they are. Even if you have weird dreams or weird sexual fantasies, it's fine. That's that's life. It's okay. Enjoy yourself. Yeah. And that's why I also wanted to touch on dark fantasies like rape or incest or infidelity or just something really dark that people may feel shame for having. How do you how do you explain to people what that's about and how they can wrap their brain around that and live with themselves. Because some of that, no, I mean, obviously in reality, that's pretty damn disturbing to think about rape. But as a fantasy, it's an entirely different story. Well, there's been tremendous amount of research on women and rape fantasies, fantasies of being forced into sex. And, and what they show is that Fantasy women having fantasies of being forced into sex are incredibly common on the order of three quarters of women have these fantasies and about a third of women have them very frequently. 
So what are they really about? Well, they could be about three things. One is that the, the traditional psychological explanation is that when women fantasize, women, do, women are, don't want to have sex, and, but they kind of want to have sex too. So women are ambivalent about having sex. And if they're forced into it in their fantasies, well, it's not their responsibility. Right. So that's explanation number one. Explanation number two is that women think, I am so hot. I am so <laughs> sexy that men cannot resist me. And unfortunately, I get forced, but hey, it proves how hot I am. Right. And then the third explanation is women saying, hey, it's a fantasy. I can fantasize anything I want. It, it doesn't mean anything. Right. So researchers have asked thousands of women about their fantasies of being forced and why they feel that way. Overwhelmingly, the women say, it's fantasy. I can fantasize anything I want. It doesn't mean anything. Right. And so that's really what rape fantasy is about. It's just another thought. And the other thing is that it fits well with, I said earlier, a lot of women have submissive fantasies. Right. And fantasies of being forced are part of, in the galaxy of submission, force is one of those things. Right. Uh, and when you talk to women about their fantasies, very few women say, oh, I have rape fantasies. Because right. rape is a loaded word. Rape yes. implies violence. Women will say, I have submissive fantasies. I often dream about being forced. Ever since I was a little girl, I had dreams about being captured by pirates. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's playful. It's not violent. It is not abusive. Fantasies of being forced is not sexual assault. No one wants sexual assault. It's just like, exactly. you know, I mean, people who are into BDSM, you know, and, and they eroticize pain. Well, they eroticize pain that they control. People yes. who are into BDSM, they don't like to be stung by bees. They don't like to be assaulted on the street. Good point. You know, they want, they want pain that they very specifically define and limit and control. And the same thing about force fantasies. Enormous proportion of women have them and many men too, but largely women. And they're no reflection on the women's mental health. They are no reflection on the women's relationships. They don't mean that women actually want to be sexually assaulted. No one wants to be sexually assaulted. No, that's but loss of control. People, yeah. And hurting. But women fantasize. Women have imaginations and they use them and it's fine. It's benign. Go ahead. Fantasize about being forced. It's fine. Exactly. And that's, that's what I wanted to say too. Just because someone fantasizes about something does not mean they want to actually do that in real life. Anything, BDS, right. spanking, whatever, doesn't right. mean they actually want to do that. Exactly. I mean, plenty of men fantasize about being the hero and rescuing the damsel in distress. <laughs> right. Okay. That doesn't mean you want to be trapped in a fire on the 28th floor. No. <laughs> no, it's, it's fantasy. It's fantasy. And like I said earlier, great sex is all about friction and fantasy. You want yeah. to know how to touch your partner. You want to tell your partner how you want to be touched. 
And then you want your mind to wander into anything that gives you pleasure. It's the two F's, <laughs> fiction and fantasy. Right. <laughs> I like that. So I would love to find out what you think about people who think that you don't change, your sexuality does not change over your lifetime. Like they think 10 years ago, you liked this. Why do you like this now? People grow, people change, people are changing all the time. You're never the same person. Every right. day you wake up, you're somebody a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the one of the observations that you find in research is that if you ask people, when did you get interested in in unusual sex, kinky sex, BDSM, you know, anal play, toys, all that kind of stuff? Right. Uh, some people will tell you that it happened when they were young, but yes. most people will tell you that it happened in middle age. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is when people are young, they, they want to lose their virginity. They want to explore sexuality. They want to be sexual. They want to have a lover. They want to have more or more than one lover. They want to be sexual with other people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a lot of fun. Right. But over time, as people are sexual into adulthood, they start thinking, hey, is that all there is? I mean, there's got to be right. other ways to play. Yep. And that is when a lot of people start changing and getting into what used to be called fringe sexuality and now is just sort of a little bit out of the ordinary. And people are changing all the time. Some people who are sexually wild as teenagers become conservative sexually as adults. Sure. A lot of people who are sexually repressed as kids blossom and and change and become sexually wild as adults. There is no predicting what happens with sexuality over the lifespan. All you know is that people are born sexual and they continue to be sexual throughout their entire life. And how they interpret that is up to them. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think one thing that I've felt as I have grown is that I also lose that feeling of caring what other people think of me and wanting to do more of what I want to do. So I'm not nearly as self-conscious as I was as a young person. So I can think more about what do I want and not be shamed by that. Right. And, you know, we owe that. I'd just like to say we owe a debt of gratitude to the LGBT community. Yeah. Because gay people have tremendous struggles coming out as gay. Yeah. Uh, and that's less so today in this generation than it was when I was a kid 50, 60 years ago. Right. Um, and the myth was nobody's gay and gay is a perversion. The sickness, right? They used to think right. it was a sickness. And you, you need therapy. Gay people eventually seize the moment and say, hey, I'm gay, and I don't care if you know. Yeah, deal with it. Deal with it. Yes, we're here, we're queer, deal with it, was a slogan of the <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, 70s. <laughs> and, and that fact, the fact that gay people were brave enough to come out and tell the world that they're gay has opened tremendous amount of cultural space 
for people to be, say, transsexual. Yes. Transgender. Which um, is the new front of that's very hard for people, I think. Right. Yes. It's the new, it's the new frontier of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And it's also given straight people permission to say, well, I'm into BDSM. I go to sex clubs. I am, am into consensual non-monogamy. I want to, I want to be who I am. And right. I am not going to be who the society tells me I have to be. And so I think that we owe a debt, a deep debt of gratitude to the lesbian gay population for opening our eyes across the culture to the to the vast array, the huge range of sexual possibilities. I really like that. And I've never thought of it that way. So I really like you said that because I'm very open. I'm I'm bisexual myself, but something I just kind of ignored for many years as a young person. But I really like that. I think that's so totally true. I think you just totally nailed us. It's totally yeah. accurate. Yes. And, you know, bisexuality is continues to be more controversial today than being gay. Yeah, right. And that's really sad because a whole lot of women in particular have bisexual feelings and, mm-hmm. and, and I, I think that's, you know, just fine. And, and, and it's great. And, and people should be who they really are. People should be authentic in who they really are and genuine, whoever that is, whoever that, whatever it may be. I have an interesting question for you. What do you think of all this explosion of like OnlyFans and people posting themselves in sexual positions, sexual pictures, nudity, and homemade porn and providing that as something like in the media? What's your take on all of that? (laughs) Well, I I was very (laughs) amused that, you know, OnlyFans boomed during COVID. Yeah. And it boomed because I know people who said, hey, we're we're shut down. We're home. We can have an OnlyFans channel. We can have sex on video and maybe make some money. Right. (laughs) So I know some people who actually did this. Yeah. They're not they didn't get rich or an open Swiss bank account, (laughs) but they, it was fun and it was something to do and it was something different and, you know, and can make a few bucks too. So fine. Right. I think, I think our definitions of privacy is what's changing. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. People, you know, when I was a kid, I'm talking 60 years ago, privacy meant that you never talked about sex, right? Ever had sex in public. Right. Uh, you never did any anything sexual except behind closed doors. Right. But but you didn't really care if your name was in the phone book, your name and address were in the phone book, and and no one considered that a violation of privacy. Right. Today it's flipped over. No one wants their name and their personal information to get out. You know their name, their address, phone number, email. True. You want to protect that as much as possible. But what's happened is people have loosened up about their imagery. And if my image is on, you know, in a porn channel on the internet, I don't care. Right. That's um, so true. So it's ironic to me that our notions of privacy have evolved and changed. And yes. I mean, most people still don't want to have, you know, nude photos of them on the internet and don't want right. to make love 
and don't want to have make sex videos and put them on the internet. It's only a small proportion of people who are exhibitionistic in that way. But there's a whole lot of them. There is, I know, right? If you're, you know, (laughs) there's, there's 285 million adults in the United States. And if 1% of them is exhibitionistic and wants to put their sex videos on OnlyFans, that's 2.8 million people. That's I mean, a lot that's of people. More, more people than you could watch sex videos in your entire life. So true. And it's only if and that's if it's only 1% of the population. And chances are, I mean, most research shows that exhibitionism is something that about one to two percent of people are seriously into. They're really exhibitionistic. And another one to two percent of people are you know, one-time thing, a fling on your birthday, anniversary, you know, Mm -hmm. just a special occasion kind of thing. Sure. Uh, Well, that's millions of people. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's a good point. It's not a small portion of people. Yeah, it's a small proportion of the population, but it's millions of people. Right. So, you know, it depends on your point of view. I think you have to recognize both that it is a small proportion, but Mm -hmm. people are free to be in that proportion of the population and, you know, enjoy yourself. And the thing about OnlyFans is it gives other people pleasure too. I mean, uh, everyone likes looking at other people and most people like looking at other people having sex. Yeah. Why not? Right. I mean, so I hear so many people say that they'd much rather watch homemade porn than these stupid scripted things that just just dumb and unrealistic and just right. fake. Yes. In fact, professional porn is going away. I mean, you know, the porn industry of the United States is located in the San Fernando Valley of Southern California. Mm. And there was a time in the 70s and 80s when uh, the vast majority of porn in the United States was produced in the San Fernando Valley. Okay. Now, only a tiny fraction of porn is produced there. I mean, amateur porn, the combination home video, home video is so easy now and home video editing that, you know, people, I mean, they make porn with their phones. I was just going to say people use their phones and edit it right on their phone. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, Professional porn, I don't think it's ever going to entirely go away. I mean, right. the, the automobile did not replace horses entirely. We still have <laughs> in America, but Good we don't point. have them for the way most people get around. Right. And I think that professional porn is probably going to stay for you know the foreseeable future. But the vast majority of porn and, and sex photos that are out there in the world and on the internet are amateur. And I think, uh, you know, people are creative. And if they want to be creative in that way, more power to them. I agree. And it's sort of also what we also see in the erotica community, because I write erotica, there's an explosion of the ability to self-publish your content at this time in never before in history. Have we had that? Exactly. Exactly. In fact, Fifty Shades of Grey started out as a self-published book on an obscure website in Australia. Right. And, and then, and only when it became wildly popular, did some publishing company go to the author and say, Hey, we'll publish it. Right. You know, homemade, 
self-publishing and self-video work, you know, sexual, sexual stuff, it's all over the place. And it's only, it's only going to get more prevalent as it becomes easier to, to make. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And I feel like there's still some people that shame that kind of thing, but yeah, I'm with you. If people enjoy it and other people like to watch it, why not? What's it harming? Exactly. It's, uh, I couldn't agree more. One thing I read in your book, which I thought was really interesting, of course, I haven't read the whole thing, but it's an amazing book. I just absolutely love it. And I obviously have not made it all the way through, but thank you again for my copy. You mentioned in there about how common it is that women provide more oral sex than they receive. Why do you think that is? And how do we change that? (laughs) Other than from your book, obviously. (laughs) Yes. Well, this is all relates to the orgasm gap between men and women. Men have orgasms a lot more than women. And and the reason is that men don't appreciate the clitoris. Right. the, The traditional psychological explanation of the orgasm gap is that men are sexually simple and women are emotionally complex and women's complexity means that more can go wrong. And so they are, are more likely not to have orgasms. Well, with all respect to women's emotional complexity, the real reason that the orgasm gap exists is that men don't appreciate the clitoris and don't get down and lick it. Amen. So, <laughs> you know, I'm the Johnny Appleseed of cunnilingus. I mean, I, I, I go around the <laughs> country trying to spread the gospel. <laughs> I love it. Men should provide oral sex to women. And, and that's another thing that changes over time. Young women, teenage women, women in their 20s, some of them will ask their men or tell their men, hey, please go down on me. Right. But it's usually later in life, women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, finally get fed up with him going to sleep and her pulling out the vibrator. Right. Um, and she says, Hey, how about going down on me? And right. so I, I feel like it's sex education is a joke in public schools because it never oh, talks, yeah. about it. never it, talks, yeah. about it. never advises men to provide cunnilingus. And like I said earlier, men want to please women. Men want the women in bed with them to have orgasms. And a lot of men just have never heard how to do it. It's just a huge disconnect. Yeah. Right. And so that is uh, a through line that runs through everything in Sizzling Sex for Life is all about how men need to understand that women do not come from intercourse. They come when you stroke, caress, fondle, lick, and suck on the clitoris. Exactly. And and sometimes men can understand this or people can understand this, not necessarily just pinpointing men. But when we, when you realize that basically we all start out the same, we all have the same sexual cells, they differentiate, but they start out the same. So in many ways, they are very similar organs. Exactly. Exactly. The sexes don't differentiate until the third trimester of pregnancy. And the same cells that become the head of the penis become the clitoris in women. And so I often tell men who, who, you know, men often ask, well, what's it like to be a woman? How do women feel? And I say, well, how do you feel? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Do you like it when someone sucks on your penis? 
Yes, right. I do. Well, women feel the <laughs> same way about uh, about cunnilingus and oral sex. So yep. do it more. It just, you know, I tell men your default position should always be to provide a lot of cunnilingus. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is what will get a woman off. And, you know, if she doesn't, it's going to be either a hand or a toy. Because like you said, and I completely agree, there are very few women that actually come from thrusting. Right, right. Yes. Unless it's, so unless it's pinpointed the right exact spot that she needs. Yeah, well, one thing you can do, people, some people have asked me questions like, hey, we understand, you know, that you should take turns having orgasms, but, but we'd like to do it kind of more together mm-hmm. and we'd like her to come during intercourse. How can we do that? Right. And so the one way to do it is a doggy position with the woman mm-hmm. man behind the woman. He can reach around and fondle her clitoris while he's inside her. Right. The other is to get a Nerf ball and put it between your pelvises. So Interesting. He's on her back. He's on top of her. They're having intercourse. And there's a Nerf ball at the base of their pelvises that is pressing on her clit. Interesting. So that's another way to go. There are all kinds of creative things that can be done. Oh, yeah. Uh, and sex toys. You could hold a sex toy if it's slim enough. It fits. Toys, yes. Can... A woman can hold a vibrator, use a bullet or a big one, you know, but the focus should always be on the woman's clitoris and the woman's pleasure. I completely agree. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. We're on the same team. Absolutely, we are. <laughs> Okay. Okay. You have an amazing day. Thank you. You too. Okay. Thank you. See you you again. Yep. Bye-bye. Ready for some spring cleaning of your beard and groin hairs? Try out Manscaped products where you can get 20% off with my new code RUIN, R-U-A-N, to get 20% off and free shipping. In order to get the discount, use the promo code RUIN, R-U-A-N, to do that spring cleaning to get yourself ready for sexy times. Heat up your spring with a new shave, a new trim. Perhaps try going there. Get more skin smacks in the bedroom, if you know what I mean.